I'm Sheila Hamilton with Beyond Well, and I'm so happy today to be talking about moving beyond the isolation and loneliness that so many of us have felt because of COVID-19. And I have such an incredible group of friends and mental health experts with me today. Doyle Smith is the Executive Director of Dual Diagnosis Anonymous. Hello, Doyle. So good to Hi, see Sheila. you. Angel Prater, Executive Director of Folk Time and an international leader in Intentional Peer Support Networking. Hello, Angel. Hi. And Michael Sorensen, the Business Development Director at Cedar Hills Hospital. Hi, Michael. Good to see you. Hey, good to see you, too. Thank you for having us. Yeah, and I want to especially thank Cedar Hills for just being a community support right now um, and supporting us today as we have this discussion about ways that we can actually move beyond this sort of problem mindset into a more collaborative and creative mode. I want to talk with you, Angel, because I have spoken with you many times before about um, intentional peer support. And I think it provides such a great framework for people who are looking for a way to think about being in this kind of crisis mode and how they actually support themselves during it. Why is it so helpful? Well, you know, uh, peer support brings a unique perspective to the table. And if we're just looking at it through the lens of peer support, um, we can get stuck there. If we look at this through the lens of human support. So intentional peer support was really developed by uh, Sherry Mead with uh, the notion of social justice, social change, and really how to be with people differently. And often in our society, we're reactive out of fear. And so if we're able to go inward and be mindful of our part in how we're reacting we can we can shift how we are with people rather than what we're doing to or for people so intentional peer support has three principles and four tasks that are intentionally uh, brought into a way of thinking differently and being differently and those three principles begin kind of like the polish on a dance floor if you're looking at the dance floor as the principles you're going from a place of helper to learner learning with people that's how help really you know unfolds and we're coming from a place of individual now to really focusing on the relationship rather just than the individuals so individual to relationship and lastly going from fear which is a reactive pattern and really honoring not to negate fear but to honor that it's there and to move through fear we want to go from fear to hope and possibilities. And then the tasks are kind of the dance steps. So we need to be aware of when we're connecting, when we're disconnecting, how to reconnect. We're not taught how to do those things when we're taught how to listen, right? right. We're not taught to go inward. And then the second task is worldview. And that's to honor multiple truths and try to explore meaning. How people see the world um, is really um, brought from a from where they are from the moment they were born to where they are today has really shaped how they interact and see the world. And, and we often get stuck on the surface and make a lot of interpretations and think we know what people are seeing or experiencing. Yeah. And then third is the mutuality. And that's not to be confused with equality. It does not mean equal. What it means is we can be mutually engaged in this relationship and move towards what we want to create together rather than me do to you and we're in these uh, dynamics of power and structure, et cetera. So just really honoring that we can mutually negotiate what we want to get uh how we want to be in this relationship together and intentionally exploring how we see ourselves in this relationship. And then lastly is moving towards often our system 
is or our world we're focusing on what we don't want and all the things we want to stop i don't want to use again i don't want to relapse i don't want to you know i don't want to be isolated mm. um but how do we take and shift to start looking at what is it that we can create what do we really want without using the words i don't want but i want i will create mm. so the three principles in the four tasks really allow for us to go inward as individuals and be aware of our part in all these dynamics and, and check ourselves and our bias, our assumptions and our training, our professional training and how that gets in the way of listening differently. It's, that was such a uh, fantastic, just really great summary of it, Angel. And Doyle, I'm, I'm wondering, as the Executive Director of Dual Diagnosis Anonymous, do you embody these tools in your peer support with the people who are working on both um, recovery and also struggling with some sort of psychological struggle at this point? Yeah, absolutely. We, we work with people with mental health and substance abuse or addictions in the state of Oregon, nationally and internationally. And we hire um, what we call dual diagnosis anonymous um, outreach specialists that are trained in the ability with skills to meet people where they're at, certain languages, things that are helping promote recovery and or provide resources that give them the recovery necessary. What we do with people that, from my perspective, I work mainly with people with mental illness and addiction issues, but there's this COVID-19 thing where it's mental health, mental health, mental health. What we do with dual diagnosis, which is actually a customized version of the 12 steps with an additional five steps that helps the mental health, we differentiate things that people would see as a defective character to mental health conditions that you just don't stop, even if you work steps around it. And then managing the mental health component with the other five steps. And we not only do it through our groups, but we also do it through community events and in skill building and activities. But first, I wanted to say it was an honor and a privilege to be invited to share my perspective along with Angel and Michael. They're both amazing people doing life-saving work. Mm -hmm. um, and DDA is actually involved in both of their organizations amongst other organizations. Um, but I do know that the tools that we offer people who are coping with dual diagnosis and DDA are most definitely helpful to the other people, especially now. In fact, we are serving and helping approximately three to 4,000 people through DDA groups and events per month before COVID-19. Wow. Um, those people were not just DDAers though, but they're also family and friends too. So we're all experiencing episodes of anxiety, depression, anger, confusion, and or behaviors through this pandemic, some more than others. And I have to be honest, these are difficult times, but the majority of people I see in our virtual meetings or in our chat rooms or talking directly via emails or phone calls are coping and managing their fear and hopelessness. Our mission in DDA is to provide hope to those that suffer. Um, or have to manage their, their mental health disorders. People who are seeking out positive support system, not isolating, being involved with constructive activities, sometimes even taking medications as prescribed, gardening, uh, learning mantras of positive affirmations. These are all positive tools, especially daily gratitudes instead of um, conversing with people with negative attitudes or how mm -hmm. messed up the government is. I mean, these are all self-defeating um, perpetuating, you know, mental health conditions that you're trying to stay away from. And, and in all actuality, if you're safe in your house, you have food, you have means, nothing's happening to you directly, 
there's ways that you can be mindful of this stuff, but usually it takes support from others or reinforcements to make sure that we can do that. And I hate to sound like a broken record, but providing first resources like food, housing, and <clears throat> finances, you know, actually is going to be first and foremost with people that are coming to our web pages. We have over 4,500 people that have visited dda.org's webpage in the last month because they're soul searching, looking for resources and or help to help not be caught up in all this stuff. And when they come to virtual meetings or chat rooms, what I'm hearing is when they've linked to somebody with similar experiences going through the same stuff and see some glimmer of hope or how other people are dealing with it, it's like magic. It's mm -hmm. like it, it really sedates the depression. It helps people get focused. It gives people alternatives. It gives people even resources. The first week we did this, somebody was suicidal and just maybe 15, 20 people came on and just started talking to him where he got the crisis intervention he needed to where we got to be told the next day that he was doing fine. And we would have never thought that was going to happen. So. I love that Doyle so much. And I also just think it's so important to normalize that there are so many people who are feeling this kind of anxiety and fear. I, I've had one of the leading EAP directors tell me that it is not just uh, people who traditionally have known to have mental health challenges, they are seeing really high performers, people who they never expected to be asking for um, behavioral health help coming to them saying, I feel as if for the first time I understand what it's like to have a mental illness. So I just want to, to normalize the experience of extreme suffering Absolutely. during COVID-19. Yeah. We've been asked to you know, turn our amygdalas on, uh, the fight or flight response with nowhere to run. And that is a really confusing thing for our bodies and brains to get used to. Michael Sorensen is with Cedar Hills Hospital, and this is by far the one place you should write down in case anybody in your family is truly suffering in crisis, because we want you to avoid the emergency rooms. But Michael, short of that, can you talk about some of the things that Cedar Hills is sponsoring and doing to make sure that people stay connected to others during this time and do not feel alone? Sure. I, I just wanted to echo again uh, my gratitude for being here today. The opportunity to, to be connected with you, Sheila, and all the work that you're doing uh, in Oregon and across the country, and the reputations that both DDA and Folk Time have uh, represented in these two leaders, is, it's really uh, it's amazing. You asked the question, what are we doing today? And I think it's important to recognize the kind of the spectrum of the ways people enter uh, a mental health conversation or a substance use conversation. Sometimes it's family that, that pushes you to, um, to, uh, to seek resources or support. Sometimes it's the law. Uh, sometimes it's, it's your self-awareness and that awakening that you might have inside of you that says, you know, something is, something's wrong. Um, uh, this crisis is something that I don't think any of us alive today has experienced at this level. Um, and uh, at least uh, in, in my circle, and the conversations that we're having are, you know, what do I do with myself? I got all my goodies from work, and I can't go to work. Or mm -hmm. most of my relationships were were at coworkers, and and I, I I don't have those connections anymore. Um, relying on technology is a big has been a big deal for us at, at Cedar Hills Hospital. All of our outpatient programming has moved to uh, the same uh, Zoom platform, where we're able to provide group group support to folks that are just leaving a mental health, an inpatient mental health setting, and needing five days a week supports, building those skills that were referenced earlier where you can go inside and, and find 
at least the questions that you need to be asking yourself and then stepping out to the community for resources. You also asked what are we doing to support the community in, in this process. We have um, public service messages that are going out consistently. We support professionals within the context of mental health and, and substance abuse treatment or substance use disorder treatment, uh, as well as peer support programming by providing uh, ongoing professional education opportunities free to the community, which can be everything from um, continuing professional education that's for nurses and licensed clinical social workers, or just a support group. Twice a month, we get together over Zoom and eat our lunch and have a conversation about what's going wrong or what's going right within our, our organizations and resources that we can share. I mean, I learned about low cost internet, $9.95 a month at internetessentials.org. I learned about a lot of, uh, a lot of folks don't have a computer at home, but they do have a smartphone. Mm -hmm. They can participate in the treatment programming that's offered here, as well as the programming DDA and others uh, provide over, over Zoom, um, right on your smartphone. But that takes a lot of data. And if you're not connected to a free uh, Wi-Fi spot, there are programs that, that are supporting folks in finding this resource. A couple of, uh, of national providers of cell phone services that have actually um, opened up the data limitation so that it's not a limitation for folks who are seeking these, these kinds of help. We, we sponsor organizations, we partner with organizations, we participate in committees, we put out information that is, is uh, I hope, supportive to both end users or individuals seeking support as well as professionals, as I was suggesting earlier in the conversation. You know, if you've ever found yourself without resources, and we do find some folks who show up at our door who don't have insurance and don't have the finances to, to, um, to start the treatment process at that crisis level, we do provide charity care services. With all of the uh, resources that Michael's offering right now, we are going to have those all listed on our webpage after this so that people will be able to link. If you're having trouble with groceries, if you're having trouble with um, rent, if you have all of the things that Michael has compiled, they're just a tremendous resource. Thank you for doing that, Michael, very much. Yes, of course. I, I want to ask each of you guys, because um, I had this wonderful conversation this week with a public health expert who was saying, I've had so many conversations with people who've endured extreme events before, extreme psychological states, and they break from reality when they lose hope that they'll ever be able to figure out what's real and what's not. Um, she said, this time reality broke from all of us. And I want you to talk about that, if you would, starting with you, Angel. It made me believe that maybe people who have suffered from extreme psychological states prior might be better at coping during this time than those of us who haven't really given ourselves the skill building. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah? Absolutely. Um, what I didn't, what I failed to mention earlier was the third principle was fear to hope and possibilities. So I want to name that. And that goes right in line with what you're saying. I think um, the way society sees individuals who have identified extreme states or we see those as, um, you know, sometimes a survival skills, sometimes it's um, a spiritual experience, sometimes it's a mental health um, experience. And they're actually um, individuals with extreme resilience and adaptability mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. the world and, and honoring multiple truths and however they identify that. And then you look at in other individuals who maybe have never had an extreme experience in one way or another, however we interpret that. For me uh, personally, I've always been 
with people. Like I'm a very socially interactive person. I'm an extrovert. I love people. And I've always had people around me in my home. And now I don't. I'm completely alone and have been this whole time in different ways. And then working from home, boy, that has taken me to a whole nother uh, place of survival, right? Um, because I don't have those personal, like I need to touch you and hug you and, and love on you, you know, and I need to be around that. Well, I think about uh, people who have never experienced X, not just the pandemic, not just um, what we're experiencing as a whole world, that in itself is fear-based, right? right. It, it creates a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear. And easily we can get stuck in a pattern of reacting to that fear, which yeah. then could make our mm -hmm. wellness deplete and our challenges increase and we right. can get really disconnected from our norm. And so how do we look at it through the lens of okay, where's the opportunities internally for me today? I've learned how to garden. I've learned how to plant things. Right. Whereas right. before I used to kill cactus, right? And so trying to look at it and think about it differently and sit through the discomfort long enough to grow through it in a hopeful way, because I can easily get to the point where I don't want to get out of bed and just isolate myself. That's my default place. Um, I, I also just think it, it's so important for all of us when we wake up and we do have those days where we feel so tired, we feel so depleted by watching what's happening around the world. We feel gaslit about how serious Absolutely. this really is to actually feel the grief. I, I yes. want you to pick up on that, Michael, because I know as a survivor, you have one of the most compelling stories to tell about how we really reclaim ourselves to be able to feel the sadness, to be able to feel these emotions and still carry hope going forward. Thank you for that lead-in. Um, as a, a suicide survivor myself, I find myself not triggered, but react, reacting at this time at a, in a way that reminds me of those desperate moments where I wasn't sure what tomorrow was going to bring and I really didn't care because of what was what was happening today was a was a, a, a deep struggle. Um, and as a young person, I found strength in both my faith tradition as well as my my hope for a better future. You know, wh whatever it is that that uh, that motivates you, whether it's a, a faith perspective or it's a, a community which can sometimes feel like a faith perspective. You tend to gravitate toward that, and sometimes it, uh, if you don't have a number of resources, it, you can feel like you're using somebody too much, um, which is one of the beautiful things about having a, um, a support community, places where you can bond over common pain, but also build resilient skills together. I, I can't say enough about how important the internet has been to a lot of, of folks who haven't been able to go see their moms, my own, uh, mm -hmm. my own parents being in their 70s. You know, I can look through the window and I can wave. I want them to be around, so um, yeah. I can't rely on them in the ways that I have. So texting has also been super important. But um, thinking back to those moments, um, uh, I think you said earlier, those who have experienced a, uh, an extreme crisis may have the ability to weather this a little bit better. I have some thoughts about that as a, as a professional in the field, but I also have some thoughts about what's happening to folks who haven't had that that awakening and when we see the increase of alcohol sales and the number of crisis calls that we receive from folks who are in severe crisis i'm certain there's a bell curve here and i'm not the math guy but i'm certain that there's some extreme ends here and and i feel like those ends have gotten longer if, if you will the, the the bell has gotten skinnier because more folks are being pushed to their crisis ends and 
it's, it's a motivator for, for me as a professional to be able to find new and different ways to help folks in the community. Um, we had a plan even before this to build a, a second hospital and it's tangential, but it's connected to this conversation and that we need resources at all parts of the mental health uh, and substance use disorder treatment spectrum. And uh, we need to continue to support all parts of that system. Boy, I couldn't agree more because if there's, if, you know, anybody who's ever had a loved one who's been through a crisis experience knows that there is only so much that you can do with community support, with home support. There is a place in our community for psychiatric beds when people have reached the end of a family's ability to care for someone. We'll pick up more of this topic moving beyond the isolation and loneliness because of COVID-19 in part two. Doyle and Angel and Michael, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Be well, everyone. Bye.